on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. One of the goals that I hope we can accomplish through the podcast today is to help you bring back the love for direct. All right. I I want you to love direct as much as you love cross-examination. That's a big, big goal. I understand that. I'm taking, taking a big leap of faith, but there are things that you can do to make direct more exciting and for you to enjoy it and enjoy direct examination. Visuals aren't just exhibits. Visuals can be a demonstration. And who better to put a demonstration on how something happened or appeared or what someone did than the witness that's on the stand? That goes to lending credibility to the witness and the witness's testimony. So in that sense, I would absolutely go further. And what better way to get that narrative out and control that narrative than introducing those exhibits those demonstrations than on direct examination. And that can be fun. That could be fun. It could be engaging. It can be exciting, especially if you've prepped the witness and you just know that the witness is going to slam it. So that's how another way, at least, that we can bring back the love of direct examination. That was Judge Amy Hanley and Denerica Brooks. And this is May the Record Reflect. Hi, everyone. This is Marcy Mangan, your host for the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I am really excited to welcome May the Record Reflect's old friend, Judge Amy Hanley, and our new friend, Denerica Brooks, to the podcast this month. Judge Hanley began her career as a first assistant county attorney and assistant attorney general in Kansas, where she led high-level crime prosecutions, including a death penalty case that eventually came before the Supreme Court of the United States. Since 2016, she has served as a district court judge in Lawrence, Kansas, and since 2021, has led the NIDA Women in Trial program, which will be offered in Denver this September. Judge Hanley is joined by Denerica Brooks. Denerica is the director of Legal Aid Chicago's housing practice group. She has spent her career at Legal Aid Chicago, first as a generalist in diverse areas of poverty law, before moving into landlord-tenant law to ensure that renters live in decent, safe, and affordable housing that is free from discrimination. Like Judge Hanley, Denerica is a member of NIDA's Next Generation faculty and together they have a lot to say about direct examination. So, without any further ado, here's our interview. Judge Amy Hanley, as a former prosecutor, you have delivered many direct examinations in your time, and now as a district court judge, you have likewise heard many directs presented to you in the jury. I want to kick off our discussion today with two questions for you. A, why does direct examination have a reputation for being so boring and being worthy of less attention? And B, is that why direct is never shown on law and order? Well, it certainly isn't the first thing they cut to in any TV program, is it? And the truth is it's because people don't consider direct to be as sexy as cross-examination. They really don't. but technically, beneath the surface, the lawyers know that the reason that direct gets neglected, so to speak, is because it's much more difficult knowing that it's about the witness and not about us. So that's why it gets the short shrift, because this is the witness telling the story. Trial attorneys, we like to be the star. And the balance of the conversation is difficult as far as we have to guide the discussion, but it's still the witness telling the story. So you have to step back and seed uh, the spotlight. And sometimes that's hard to do. Absolutely. I mean, right, Denerica, that's why we took this job. We want to be the star. We like that stage and we've got to give that to the witness. But I also think there's a a certain aspect that we are trained to be the center of attention and we're trained to think that we're the star. It it can be difficult to move past that. 
when we talk about making the witness the star, how, how much better would direct be if an attorney decided that they were comfortable being the director of this show as opposed to the star, where you get to guide the story in a persuasive way that keeps the fact finder engaged or you provide a visual for the fact finder all through the lens of the witness. And I think we have to be more comfortable getting and sitting in the director's chair as opposed to being the main attraction. Absolutely. And in order to do that, it does make the job easier if you have some more focus on witness prep. We don't always love witness prep because we have reluctant witnesses to deal with. Witnesses are also anxious. It can take some work. And if you're going to prep a witness, you need to know your case and have the case ready to go at the time that you prep that witness. But if you take the time to get things ready early and prep the witness, it will be easier to take that director role as Denerica explains it and guide that conversation and keep the witness in the zone, so to speak, of where you want them to be with telling the story. So if direct doesn't get a lot of love and attention, then it's fair to say that mistakes could be more easily made along the way, that there will be common pitfalls that befall the hapless advocate. Judge Hanley, is there a particular error that you often see from the bench? Not listening to the witness happens probably at least 50% of the time. And what I mean by that is not just asking the question and making sure that you've looked at the witness and you've got your question right, but actually stopping to focus on what the specific response is and listening to that before you get your head back into your notes and go on to the next question. And the issue with that is oftentimes it's something that the witness has, your next question is something the witness has already answered because you didn't listen to them you're simply repeating it and the jury notices that, or maybe you missed a very confusing or hurtful response that you need to do some follow-up on. The jury is watching every move you make when you're up there at the podium and they notice if you're not paying attention to the witness. So beyond just making sure that the content you need gets in, you also have to make sure that you're giving the witness your attention and that the jury sees that. This is important, jury. I'm paying attention to the witness. You want to be paying attention. I see a lot of attorneys too concerned with their questions and what the next question needs to be. And we're thinking about lots of things during this trial. You have to listen to the witness. Denerica, what are some of the reasons that we're not paying attention to the witness? Judge Hanley mentioned that you're thinking about the question that you're going to ask next, but is there anything else that plays into that? Well, Judge Hanley hit the nail right on the head. You're not listening because you're tied to a script. And when you're tied to your script, it just makes the direct boring, monotonous. You get into that, well, what happened next? And then next, what happened? What happened after that? And so you're really missing some opportunities. And I would say that that leads to moving too fast. Because you're being because you're tied to a script, you're just going to the next question and you are breezing through the story. You're not paying attention to where there are opportunities for emphasis. You're failing to set the scene or spending time on key issues or points when you actually listen and you can see how those questions can affect a witness, you can pick up on that if you're actively listening and then turn that into something where you can really nail one of your key elements home or really make the point that you need to make to prove your theory of the case. So that listening leads into your persuasive theories or just being a persuasive advocate. But it all starts with that listening that Judge Hanley talked about. And I'm so glad that you mentioned story because storytelling is always a technique that we talk about when we're discussing trials and how to put a trial together. And this is a common pitfall with direct examination and preparing direct examination. You have to know your story first. What I'm talking about there is not creating your outline or your list of questions for your witness in a vacuum. 
what's your whole story? What is the whole narrative? How does this witness fit into that story? Once you know that, that guides your questions and makes it an interesting direct examination because we're going to be introducing that story as part of our opening statement. If we were talking about opening today, we would say that is your main goal with opening is to tell the story. Now, how does this witness help us tell the story? And if we've thought of that before, we're going to be moving through it in a way that resonates with the jury. Storytelling is so effective with juries, don't you think, Daenerica? I mean, that's what brings them into our world. That's our connection. So we're not just lawyers talking at people. And it makes us, it makes you relatable. It makes your client relatable because people want something that they can resonate with or that they can feel good about or something that somehow invokes their own lived experience. And the way that you get that is through that storytelling and not just throwing facts out at people. And it goes to credibility and who a jury is going to believe. And they're going to believe someone who can tell a story that is believable and credible through the eyes or the ears of the jury. And it makes it so much more organized, or at least as the jury sees it, it doesn't feel so disorganized. What I always refer to as the jumpy and bumpy direct. We're here and then we're over here and now we're back here because the attorney forgot a question they needed to ask. If you're telling the story, the jury's right there in the moment with the story. It's all logical. It's going to go in an order that not only makes sense, but it becomes very persuasive because it's told as a story. Danerica, how do you organize your direct examinations? It sounds like being organized so that you avoid that jumpy and bumpy presentation is really important. It really depends on what it is that you're trying to convey through the witness. Sometimes chronology works really, really well if you have something that just is very, very straightforward. But sometimes you need to spend a little bit of time on action, uh, especially if your theory is one that is emotionally persuasive. You might have to spend some time where you, you do your pleasantries and you get out while we're here, but then you spend a, a lot of time setting a scene, slowing down action, talking about feelings, explaining actions that were taking, taken as a result of something. And organizing that way about what are those key points that you need to elicit? What do you need this witness to do? And sometimes you have a witness what, where what you need is a foundation for evidence. And so you have to spend some time actually laying foundations and admitting evidence. So your organization is really going to depend on what do you need to accomplish? And you need to know what your story is and what your elements are, because sometimes we neglect the technicalities, what your elements are to know how to organize that direct. Key points in the case are so critical for organization. One of the goals that I hope we can accomplish through the podcast today is to help you bring back the love for direct. All right. I, I want you to love direct as much as you love cross-examination. That's a big, big goal. I understand that. I'm taking, taking a big leap of faith, but there are things that you can do to make direct more exciting and for you to enjoy it and enjoy direct examination. Key points in the case is also known as head notes. Some people call them signposts, they're transitional statements, and we use those during direct examination to organize our case. The way that I always got my head notes were thinking about what is my key point here? What is the focus of this direct examination? What are the three or four things that I have to get out? And those would become my head notes. Depending on the length of the examination, it might be a lot more than three or four. But head notes are transitional statements and they're persuasive transitional statements that go beyond just, I want to direct your attention to April 24th of 2020. I want to talk to you about what you did in this investigation that led you to this particular suspect, officer. 
all right? Something that's getting you there. Or if you were going to be talking to them about things that were helpful for their testimony about credibility, let's talk about how well you know this defendant. So headnotes are persuasive. Headnotes help organize the case and they can introduce key points. I think that's something that makes the direct sing and that can really help you give your direct some more love and you can enjoy doing it. And Judge Handley, I am so glad that you brought up the issue of head notes. I think they are often neglected and underused because when we talk about sitting in that director's chair and directing the scene and putting out graphics, those head notes can be a way to do that. It's a way to control the narrative that you want to get out. It's a way to help your witness stay focused, to stay on task, to know ex explicitly what it is that you want to talk about. And so you can direct the story in that way as well. It just really helps to move the story along, to change topics, and so that the witness doesn't get confused. So that's that director chair again. And another thing that helps you figure out what your head notes might be or your key points are the exhibits or visuals that you're going to use during this direct examination. And please, please, we beg you, use exhibits and visuals into your direct examination. That absolutely punches it up and brings more interest. The jury's going to be paying attention when you put something up on that screen. I'm noticing when you put something up on the screen, when you publish an exhibit, and it might be that the three particular photos that this witness needs to introduce during those, during their testimony are the key points that you have to bring out, which brings you to your head notes, and that helps you organize. Right there, you've got a whole plan, different topic areas that you're going to address with this witness, and that feels easier and it, it feels fun. Here are the things that we're going to talk about with this witness. Do you typically introduce all of your visuals and exhibits during direct? Well, you certainly don't have to. It can be a lot of fun on cross-examination when you get to lead to lay the foundation and admit on cross. But when you, especially when you are the plaintiff or you're the prosecutor, if it's a criminal case, this is your story. And visuals and exhibits are critical for helping you tell that story. So as much as possible should be coming in through direct when you're telling your story through, the, through your witnesses. What do you think about that, Denerica? I think that's absolutely correct, but I would go a step further. Visuals aren't just exhibits. Visuals can be a demonstration. And who better to put a demonstration on how something happened or appeared or what someone did than the witness that's on the stand? That goes to lending credibility to the witness and the witness's testimony. So in that sense, I would absolutely go further. And what better way to get that narrative out and control that narrative than introducing those exhibits those demonstrations than on direct examination. And that can be fun. That can be fun. It could be engaging. It can be exciting, especially if you've prepped the witness and you just know that the witness is going to slam it. So that's how another way, at least, that we can bring back the love of direct examination. And I have to stop and tell a quick war story with that or give an example because it's an absolute great one. Because when we're doing stuff in the courtroom, I mean, we're doing stuff the whole time, right? But the jury doesn't see it that way. When the lawyer is talking, when the judge is talking, we're not doing stuff. They see doing stuff as demonstrations, as exhibits. Or my example is the case where the officer wanted to bring his canine dog into the courtroom. And it was great. Now, I'm an animal lover, so I say it's great because... I loved it, but the jurors absolutely loved it. And I wasn't sure it was my co-counsel who proposed it, uh, mainly because he wasn't doing a lot else in the case, which is another story. The victim's family had hired him under a special statute. And he said, you know, I really want, I want to make this big. 
I want to bring the dog in, right? And the dog's name was Rusty. And the jurors just absolutely loved it. And they remembered that testimony really well because they have the visual and and the sensory interaction with the animal actually in the courtroom. Now, uh, I would allow it in my courtroom, but again, animal lover judge. So I don't know, but I'm sure you've seen some good things, Generica, and have probably had some good ideas of your own to engage jurors with things like that. A- absolutely. I think that even when we're talking about the type of evidence, think about it. It's so many things can seem so abstract. If you're talking about someone saying they saw a gun or, you know, I was a block away and I saw a gun and you think about what that gun actually looks like, because you can find anything on Google, right? And you're sitting in the witness chair and you see a gun and it's like a nine millimeter Ruger and it's the size of the palm of your hand. And you can say, wait a minute, you saw this gun from a block away and it's only the size of the palm of your hand? Think about how persuasive that is when you are seeing it for the first time as opposed to hearing it come out of somebody's mouth. And so just the persuasive nature of the evidence that you're you're presenting. So we call those demonstratives, right? If you don't have the actual item, you bring in a demonstrative. If you don't have the actual gun, maybe you get the exact same type of gun and bring that in so the jury can actually see it um, and understand what we're talking about here. We're using the example of a firearm, but there are many other things that would apply there. If you don't have the item, a demonstrative exhibit to show the jury what the item looked like is really helpful and really persuasive. And demonstratives go beyond that. It's visual aids, things that attorneys have put together, something that you've put together with an expert. All of those just increase the persuasive value and the engagement and the attention getting factor of the jury, which is what we're going for here to make direct more fun, more exciting for everybody. You've both touched on the witness, and I wonder if we can talk about how you can prepare the witness so that it's more fun for you and the witness feels more at ease on the on the witness stand. You, you know, I have to admit that I enjoy witness prep probably more than I'm supposed to. And in preparing a witness, I actually start with cross-exam. I know that we're talking about the love of direct exam, but I start with cross-exam so that the witness knows what it could look like and what may be coming from you for the other side, but it also lets me identify What things do I have to worry about and what things do I need to address on direct so that they are not coming up for the first time on cross-examination? And it just is a it's a map for me. But witness preparation really does go a long way. And I try different scenarios in witness prep. What happens if this piece of evidence gets in? How are we going to talk about it? How are we going to address it? And then also that practicing really does bring a sense of ease and comfort to the witness because they have an expectation now. They know what to expect. They have an idea of what you're going to talk about, the way that the questions will seem. And then it's beta testing. You know if you're using legalese because you've prepped and the witness is like, wait a minute, I don't really know what you're saying there. I don't know what you're asking. And it's a great checks and balances to get you out of that legal mind and then and the mind of communicating in a way that is clear and concise for the witness and the jury. I really love that approach. I don't know that I've heard that before, you know, starting with cross-examination. And then you get to say, and now all the hard stuff's done, right? Let's talk about the questions I'm going to ask you. That's good. The way that I always started my witness prep was with a phase that I called ventilation. All right. You're here. You're no doubt anxious. You're worried. There are things on your mind. Let's get all that off your chest. And then we can talk about what I'm going to ask you, giving them a moment to kind of normalize, because usually they came in with at least one burning question of, you know, what are we going to do about this? Or, you know that I didn't see all of this, right? I'm not even sure why I'm here because there's only so much I can tell you. I understand that, Ms. Witness. Here's how you fit into the case. 
but what else is bothering you? Let's talk about it. You know, if I was in Chicago, Daneric, I, I need to give them a three or four minutes just to vent about traffic once they got to witness prep, right? <laughs> so let's get that off our chest. Let's ventilate. And now let's get into the more <laughs> substantive things. So that was an approach that I took. And I even had to take that approach with experts. Even they needed a little bit of time to talk about the things that concerned them. Because if we say direct examination isn't about the attorney, it's about the witness, witness prep is even more so not about the attorney, okay? We're not prepping the witness so that you can be prepared. We're prepping the witness so they're ready and more importantly, so they're comfortable on the stand. Have you ever been on the witness stand, Denerica? I have and I hated it. That's like last choice of where I want to be in the courtroom is on the witness stand. I have. <laughs> it's nerve wracking, especially when you don't want to be there. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's that was always my approach. And if you can build a rapport like Denerica is talking about, if you can get them to have a rapport with you, direct examination is absolutely going to be more fun for everybody and more engaging for the jury because they're going to be able to see that rapport between you and the witness. And that rapport, that rapport is so critically important, not just because you're disseminating information, but because you want to be able to have a conversation and you want that witness to be able to trust you because it's, it's an adversarial environment, right? And so the witness is sitting there, all of these faces that they don't know are watching them and they're being really insecure about what if I don't say this right? But having that trust and knowing that someone there is for them or has their back and that that person will correct anything that comes out or find a way to fix it, that rapport is so critically important in moving that direct examination along in a way that makes sense. That, that is so true. And that's not going to happen in three minutes when they walk into the courthouse, you say, hi, my name is Amy Hanley. Shake their hand. Don't you worry. Nothing, you know, I've got your back. That's not going to cut it. You need to have witness prep beforehand, set up a specific time, take the time to do it. Absolutely worth it. Take the time. Take the time. I cannot stress that enough. It is an investment. <laughs> you can't rush through it. You have to invest in it. How do you prepare a witness who is, shall we say, challenging? Someone who doesn't want to be there or they are reluctant to share their story. Denerica, do you have some thoughts on that? I will say, first and foremost, that you have to be prepared that no matter how well you prepare a witness, they will get on the stand and say something that they weren't supposed to say, something that will throw you off. It's just going to happen. Um, but I do think that informing people of the process and of the importance of direct and the questions that you are asking really does go a long way to just explain this is why you're being asked these questions. This is why it's really important for you to answer the questions that you're being asked and not to offer additional information. Um, and this is why it's important that you really do try to control your emotions because you are on display. It is important. People are judging you. They're judging the way that you, you react or they're looking for cracks in your shell. So just really giving people the information so that they can be informed to know how to behave. And then after that, it's really up to them. I had the experience as a prosecutor when I had that role with domestic violence victims that were certainly reluctant, if not altogether uncooperative. That is really challenging because you understand why they're uncooperative and there's a lot going on there, a lot that you could never personally understand or even know all those details, even touch the surface. But demonstrating to that individual that you understand they don't want to be there. You understand that it's not their choice to proceed. In many instances, it wasn't. Recognizing that and saying, but we're going to put you on the stand and these are the questions that I'm going to ask. 
and then we'll be done and you can get out of here just being straightforward and not trying to coerce them or force them into anything being very business-like these are the questions while acknowledging their circumstances people want to be acknowledged witnesses feel like lawyers bring them into cases and they have no respect for their time you're just here because i have subpoena power over you and you're going to do this and then then you're going to get out of here acknowledging their circumstances acknowledging that it's a sacrifice on their time and their schedule acknowledging that it's not fun it's not easy and it's going to be a hard thing that all goes a long way that goes hand in hand with just being a human anything we would do in normal life right that builds rapport during a conversation talk to people talk to them using the things that you would talk to anybody about you know again if you need to vent about the traffic if you need to ask them how their day is gone you know what time do you need to get out of here i understand you have child care issues okay we're going to wrap this up as quickly as we can those are all natural human things but i will admit that i along with a lot of other lawyers would forget to just show that human side of myself when prepping a witness i was you know, very formal mode and I'm the prosecutor. We have to remember that when prepping the witness and it helps a lot when we're talking about with hesitant or reluctant witnesses. You know, I think that goes back to even that listening piece a little bit, um, but that human aspect of it, I think that we often underestimate that because if you do have someone on the stand that's having a really hard time, hopefully, you are in tune with that or you see it or you recognize it because you see nonverbal cues or even verbal cues and you know that you have to take a moment that maybe you need a break and then you add in some kind of transition question or an acknowledgement of the hard time that they're having um, or that they're having and so building that into the direct and being okay with being flexible even if it takes you away from your script but also you have those witnesses on direct examination where maybe it's not emotional. Maybe it's just that they are on the witness stand for the first time and they want to be the star. And so they're going to go rogue and they're going to share all this extra information and they want to tell you exactly what they want the jury to know, even if you know that it's probably not the best interest. And so you may have to ha have some additional head notes where you specify, we're just going to talk about this or we're going to move on to that. We need to move on now. Um, and really trying to control the witness in that way as well and restructure questions if you have to, to stay on target. Ah, uh, witness control on direct. The, the thing we never thought we would need, right? This is my witness, so it will be fine. They did such a good job during the witness prep. I'm sure it'll be fine. And then we see a completely different version of the same person when they take the stand. And we have to control them using the techniques that you were talking about, you know, a head note, at reminding them that we're focused on a specific subject area right now, and we'll come back to that later. All of those things make direct more challenging. It's probably, in truth, another reason why we don't like it as much, because during cross, we get to lead, and that makes it a lot easier. But once you hone that skill of making sure that you're being human and you're listening and you're making sure that if there is something that's taking us off topic or it's a really long answer, we just do the gentle, gentle steering them back to the subject area. And because we're listening, we know when we need to do that. Once you've honed that skill, it becomes really just a as you said before, Denerica, a guided conversation, and you can feel yourself in control of that conversation and maintaining that feels really good. What about bad facts? Sometimes you have a bad fact about your client, or sometimes there's something about a witness that undermines their own credibility in the eyes of the jury. When do you want to introduce those bad facts? Is direct the 
best place to do that so that you can kind of control the narrative or what are your thoughts? Oh, there's always bad facts. <laughs> always bad facts. Always things that you wish you didn't have involved in the case or even things that are Im at least impliedly bad. You do need to introduce them on direct examination. Leaving them for opposing counsel to address looks like they've been hidden, looks like they've been forgotten, and maybe you just didn't even know about it as an attorney. And you don't want any jury thinking that, wow, even the attorney didn't know about this horrible thing. You do need to bring them up on direct. The key is timing for when you bring them up not at the very beginning, and please don't end on it. You want to put them in the middle. Sometimes we say bury them in the middle. If it's a really bad fact, it's going to be impossible to bury, but place it in the middle as far as how you order your direct examination so that that concept of primacy and recency we remember the first and last things that we hear better than what we hear in the middle. We don't want that concept to be used to the advantage of opposing counsel here. So put it in the middle. The other thing I would say about strategy for bringing it in is your use of tone and how you ask the question. I've seen attorneys do a really great job with this when they need to ask their client about something bad that they did or a prosecutor asking a co-defendant who was given a deal about what they did and making sure that that tone matches what the jury might be thinking. You know, why would you do that? Why would you agree to be part of that crime? So the tone conveys to the jury that we understand this is something that you're not going to like. And my tone appreciates that, so to speak. Has that been your experience too, Denerica, or are there other tips that you might share? Well, less of a tip, but I'll give you an example. You introduce your witness. Can you state your name for the record? Where do you live? How long have you lived there? Now, you're a convicted felon. You know, are you a convicted felon? Now, before you know anything else, you've got at the very beginning three questions in that this person is a convicted felon and you're introducing it because you know that it'll get in. But because of that placement, now I'm going to have reservations because let's be honest, we're human. Everybody's judgmental or has their own implicit bias about things. Nothing the witness says after that is actually going to matter. And so there's this phenomenon of you know, make the witness the friend of the jury or the attorney at the beginning. Let us know who they are. Let us know about them, their experiences, why they're really here before you get to that. OK, well, you're a convicted felon. That was, you know, how long ago was that? Whatever the case may be and explain the way. But I would also say. Introduce it and discard it. And I think that is one of the pitfalls when you don't discard it. When you dwell on it too much, you spend too much time on it and you make it into a much bigger deal than it actually needs to be. And that's where we get ourselves into trouble. I absolutely agree. The jury assigns value based on volume. They truly do. The more you talk about something, the more important it must be. Right. They keep bringing it up. Witnesses keep talking about it. This attorney keeps asking about it. So I, I like that. Don't you've got to discard it. We don't want to dwell on it. We don't want to ask a lot of questions. Put it in the middle. And your comments about talking with the witness or introducing the witness and getting into some background. I, I'm glad you brought that up. As far as structuring any direct do take the time to give a little background. Even your police officers, even the expert witness, where are they from? You know, do they live here? How long have they been an officer? What did they do before that? The jury wants to know. There, there might be something in that background that resonates with them for whatever reason. We're humanizing them. And I'm a judge. And at this point, I would tell you, I've not seen any judge that I was in front of or any colleague or really any trial where the judge didn't let you spend a little time on the background of a witness. That's just 
humanizing the people that are in front of the jury. I just want to take a moment to interrupt today's episode to say that the doors to the NIDA Women in Trial program are now open for registration. The program will be held at the beautiful law offices of Holland and Hart in downtown Denver on September 20th to 23rd. And if the past is indeed prologue, it's going to sell out early. If you like what you've been hearing in this episode and want to receive this caliber of training, but face-to-face and on a first-name basis with Judge Hanley and Denerica Brooks, please visit nita.org and type Women in Trial into the search bar at the top of the webpage to sign up. But now, let's get back to our interview. Denerica, you've talked a little bit about delivery. I wonder if you could share how important demeanor is in making you excited about doing direct examination so that it's something that you love and enjoy? Well, I would say with demeanor, the first thing is to actually be your authentic self. Because when you're conducting a direct examination, especially if it's a, if you're the plaintiff, it's your case in chief, this is really the jury's introduction to you and who you are. And so if you're stiff, if you're stiff as a cardboard, you're just going through the motions, they'll see that and they'll notice that. And, oh, this is just a job where this person doesn't believe in their case. But I will tell you, in every trial that I have seen, the attorneys that actually show decorum to the court, who have a professional demeanor, it goes a really, really long way. That professionalism, being respectful, actually doing what you're supposed to do, people look at that and they assign credibility and value to you as an advocate based on your demeanor. Nobody likes a bully. If you're out here and you're bullying a witness, even if it's your witness on direct, I have seen it. When the witness is not testifying the way that you want them to testify, and all of a sudden you become a bully to get them back on track, you lose people. You lose not only your witness because you've lost trust, but you've lost the trust of the fact finder as well. So demeanor, it cannot be underestimated just how much you need to commit to that. In addition to not being a bully, don't be a bore either. The what happened next and what happened after that and then what happened? That is boring. The jury is not paying attention to you whatsoever, which we want them to be paying attention to the witness, but your delivery brings it up a notch if you're engaged and that's not going to happen with what happened next. Those questions aren't going to get you there. Similarly, the questions that have a lot of the lawyer words and the very formal words, we always use the example of, you know, nobody ever subsequently exited a vehicle Afterwards, they got out of a car. That's how we should be phrasing our questions so that we're part of the engaging part of the story. After you got out of the car, what's the very first thing that you heard as opposed to when you subsequently exited the vehicle, what happened next? That is boring. Be engaging with your word choice and the demeanor. I, I would echo everything that Denerica has to say. It, it instills confidence in the jury. If, if you're doing nothing else, you're showing them that you are a competent attorney. You should trust me, jury. Everything I say is right because I'm competent and I know what I'm doing and I'm in control of this courtroom. So you can convey that through direct examination by head notes, by using words that resonate with the jury and making sure that your tone and everything you do has some level of excitement and engagement, passion about the case. And when we talk about that engagement and that tone, it actually makes me go back and think about how to really identify those key points that you want to talk about. Say that you find yourself in like just a drum of those questions. What happened next? What happened next? And you know you need to re-engage. And the witness says something and you could take a step back, even though you've gotten the narrative out already. Okay, I want to go back and talk about what you actually saw in that moment. Tell us what you saw. Tell us what you smelled. Tell us how that made you, you know, how did that make you feel? 
when you felt angered, why were you so angry? And using that tone really to slow things down, to resonate, to connect um, through human experience, all of those things, just taking those key points to make them hit home. And you're doing that all through tone. You, that's a standstill right in the middle of the story that you're using tone and those open-ended questions to get out all the details and it fills in the entire script for the jury. It gives them the entire picture of what happened. They're not doing it themselves. We don't want them filling in the gaps or the script or the story by themselves. We want you painting the picture and every detail of it. And exactly that line of questioning that Denerica just used as an example, that's what gets you there. It's a combination of a head note and it's still open-ended questions, but very precise. How did you feel right there in that moment? Why did you react that way at that time? What should we know about redirect Denerica? There are so many attorneys that will be upset with me when I say this, but it's so overrated. <laughs> <laughs> it's overrated. I think that attorneys get into the habit of feeling that compelled to do it. Like I have to do it. This is what is expected of me. But in reality, if there was no damage done on cross-examination or the damage is minimal, let it go. Don't even accept or assume the risk that you're going to ask a question that is going to open the door to a recross or open a door that you really don't want to walk into because you didn't deal with it on your direct in the first place. And because sometimes you don't know what the witness is going to say because it just came out. So just if you can walk away, walk away. It's just it's not a risk worth taking all the time. The phrase I always use was, uh, if no harm, no need. If there's been no harm done, there is absolutely no need for redirect. There can be a need, but I believe it's very limited circumstances. And you should think about these circumstances beforehand. You should be planning your redirect. Why? Because if you don't, here's what you're going to do. You're going to lead and you're going to get objected to. Because on redirect, we're getting up to clean up something we think that needs to be fixed and we're going to lead the witness right to it. That's going to be the natural temptation. So think about it and plan those questions out. But I would say that usually what you are doing is either fixing something that happened on cross or clarifying something that opposing counsel has managed to do a good job of confusing and getting the jury wondering, or, and this is limited circumstances again, but re-messaging. So if you've got the focus has turned to another defendant in a criminal case, for instance, or turned at the victim, you can re-message with a short series of questions to which the answer is the defendant's name, right? Who planned this? Who brought the gun? Who drove the car? So that's a re-messaging example as far as why you might want to redirect, but please don't overdo it. Also, if you overdo it, it probably means they're going to get recross. And boy, the bench loves that. I love it when I foresee a redirect, recross, redirect, you know, a very long one in my future, because I want to make sure that the new areas that were covered are also allowed to be covered by opposing counsel. But we all get tired of that real quick, especially the jury. And thank you for those examples of redirect questions that are open. Because with direct, you want to start strong and you want to end strong, right? And so you get into redirect and your witness doesn't know where you're going and you start leading and you start drawing objections. And the next thing you know, you're sitting down on an objection. Right. And so <laughs> and that's one of the other dangers. So thank you for that example of those open-ended questions on redirect. Yeah. Sitting down on redirect to an objection, not a good look, not a good look at all. <laughs> Well, speaking of ending strong, I want to thank you both for joining me on this fantastic discussion about how to bring back the love to direct examination. 
Our final question, of course, is our sign-off question, which is a little bit of fun. So I will open with you, Judge Hanley, and please tell me what book you are reading for pleasure these days. I just finished Dinners with Ruth, and I highly, highly recommend. So this is Nina Totenberg's book about her friendship and relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Beyond the very interesting and charming tidbits about RBG, it's a book about female friendship that just makes you feel so good. And it was actually given to me by a friend of mine who is a female judge here, so it meant even more. But a discussion about female friendship and what that looks like, especially when you become friends later in life as adults, which is different than a childhood friend. So. I loved it, loved every minute of it. It was one of those books like I made notes in the margin kind of thing because I really, really enjoyed it. It's brand new. I I would recommend it. And how about you, Tenerica? What are you reading? Oh, I'm going to admit this out loud, but um, I have a flair for drama and I love drama. So I am currently reading Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, <laughs> just because I need a little messiness in my life. Um, <laughs> and this is full of the messiness, uh, just something different to to look at and think about that takes away from the seriousness of the work that I do. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to read about other people's problems, isn't it? It really is. I, I think we absolutely need those guilty pleasures, right? I, mine, I do that with, with TV. I, I need it. I want to tell you both that I recommend Shrinking. So it's about a grieving therapist. He just, he lost his wife about a year prior to the show in a car accident. And he decides that he's going to tell his clients exactly what he's thinking. And the ramifications of what that will do to his clients are yet to be seen. But that's what the show is about. My favorite part is the discourse and the relationship between Gabby and Paul, Jessica Williams and Harrison Ford. And I love Jessica Williams when she was a correspondent on The Daily Show. And I always thought she was so smart and funny and she's great in this and then you've got surly harrison ford playing this therapist and the dynamic between the two of them is great so i love it <laughs> i watch doc mcstuffins and bubble guppies that is the extent of the tv in our house right now <laughs> <laughs> my thanks go out to judge amy hanley and denerica brooks for this incredible conversation Neither of them is a stranger to Studio 71. They have both contributed to our bank of substantive webcasts and podcasts, which are absolutely free on our website. Links to that content are in the show notes in case you're interested. And hey, if you got your recommended daily allowance of trial ad nutrition from this episode and haven't yet shared it with a friend or colleague, we would love for you to do just that. As always, thanks a million for listening and subscribing. Until next month, happy lawyering. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.